Welcome to All About Agatha, the podcast dedicated to reading and ranking every single mystery novel written by the Queen of Prime, Dame Agatha Christie. I'm Catherine Broback. And I'm Kemper Donovan. And this week we are tackling um Parker Pine. <laughs> <laughs> Catherine's excited. I'm sorry, was there like a, it was a note, note of hesitation there on my end, possibly. Are we coming down a little bit in your excitement off of, and then there were none, Catherine, by I mean, doing a Parker Pine here? it would be here? hard to get more excited. I think that, you know, we would have had aneurysms of some kind. So, <laughs> you know, perhaps it's time for a breath of short story. Tell us what story we're doing this week. The Case of the Discontented Husband. And perhaps also the discontented Catherine Brobeck. This one was first published in the U.S. in Cosmo, as so many of these were, in August 1932. It was in that same collection that we've discussed before, Are You Happy? If Not, Consult Mr. Parker Pine. And then it was published in the U.K. in October of 1932 in Women's Pictorial under the alternate title, His Lady's Affair. An apt title, as we will see in just a right. moment. All right, Catherine, tell us about our victim here. Do you want to come back to me at the end of this? <laughs> <laughs> Let's give the simple answer for now. Okay. All right. Well, the simple answer is that our victim is Mr. Reginald Wade, a married man. And his wife has basically given him six months to shape up or else she's going to leave him for her new interest because Reggie apparently can't be bothered to pay attention to her or be anything except horribly boring. Okay. Well, let's talk about our suspects. We've really only got one. This is one of the early Parker Pine stories within the Parker Pine collection. The later ones, as we've also discussed, do feature mysteries. We covered Death on the Nile already, and we will get, we promise, to other Parker Pine mysteries. But these earlier ones are... They're affairs of the heart. They're affairs of the heart. That is an excellent way of putting it. So we've got an affair of the heart here, not much of a puzzle mystery. This is why our only suspect, quote unquote, is Mrs. Iris Wade. That would be Reggie's attractive, young-looking, mid-30s wife who loves arts and culture, but is tired of having none of her interests responded to by her hubby, Reggie. And she has since taken up with Sinclair Jordan, and she means to divorce Reggie and marry Mr. Jordan instead. Right. Catherine, tell us about the world as it appears to be. Mr. Reginald Wade shows up uh, to Parker Pine in a state of utter despair. He loves his wife Iris more than anything in the entire world. They've been married for nine years. He worships the ground she walks on. He has eyes for no other woman. I want to just reiterate, this is what he tells Parker Pine, to be clear. Are you saying that he might be an unreliable narrator of his own story? I might be suggesting that. Um, (laughs) And then when asked really why, well, his wife has recently made it clear that she's been driven away by the fact that he can't hold a conversation with her about anything and that his only interest is playing golf and that he has made zero effort to try. Huh. Does a husband being interested in golf and only golf to the exclusion of most other things ring any bells from <laughs> yeah, Christie's own life. It's just perhaps? like a giant sirens going off. Yeah, this feels in a lot of ways like a post-divorce response to the debacle of Christie's first marriage with Archie Christie. Yeah, there's definitely an element of it, especially I think the end of it. Yes. Yeah. 
mm-hmm. will talk about that when we get there. So Reggie's yeah. wife, Iris, has taken up with an attractive, long-haired, oh, how can you even long haired? It's such Art. it's such one of those Christie tropes that I it's know. like so funny to see it repeatedly. It's like if you it's a little bit like people saying that, you know, the Beatles were like corrupting youth because they had like floppy hair. Yep. In Christie, if you are a man with long hair, that means that you are a feat and Or like a drug addict or something. I mean you're, there's something you're, you're undesirable, right? Correct. Un- yes. A long haired man is an undesirable man in the world of Christie, and a tan man is a desirable man. And if you are a tan man with crisp curling hair and blue eyes. Oh, well then. <laughs> so this long haired art aficionado, oh, it just gets worse and worse. His mm-hmm. name is Sinclair Jordan and she plans to marry this 'er ne'er-do-well. But given her remaining affection for her husband, she's agreed to hold off for six months and she will reevaluate at that point. So Reggie desperately needs Parker Pine's assistance to help him self-improve and thereby win his wife back. I mean, she's given him an ultimatum, which, you know, honestly seems more than fair enough, right? She's basically said, you know, I really don't see this going anywhere. I don't see you fixing this, but we have been together for nine years. So, okay, here are the problems in our marriage. And she lists them out, right? He has Mm -hmm. all the details. And she says, you know, there's this other person. I'm being very direct and honest with you. I'll give it six months and we can talk again. But I, and I also just have to say, I'd like to pause at this point in the story. Time out! (laughs) Because... The sense that we get of Reggie at this point is he's kind of sweet, right? In that, I mean, Mm -hmm. he's an oaf, obviously, and he's a bit of a bore. And I mean bore in both senses of the word. But he seems to legitimately love his wife and be really upset that she wants to leave him and to want to self-improve, as we've put it here, and figure out a way to win her back. And it seems to be an honest... It's sincere. At least it seems sincere. And sincere wish, yes. There is no cynicism coming from Reggie here in the story. The cynicism is all coming, of course, from Mr. Parker Pine. So let's just note that and then continue on with the story. Time in. Pine assures Reggie that all will be well, and he asks if Reggie has ever cheated. And the answer is, well, no, of course not. And there is a little bit of a sense that, yes, it's because he, like, adores and worships his wife, but also that it has never occurred to him. (laughs) Again, I think it's a sweet characterization. It hasn't occurred to him because he's a sweet simpleton who doesn't play games like that and isn't a bad lot at this point in the story. Correct. <laughs> <laughs> He's uncorrupted at this point Keep in the story. Caveats, yes. yeah. Yes. Um, but so basically, what Parker Pine says to him is that he needs to reassert his own value so that his wife can see it. That he needs to make his golfing and business talk seem intriguing, make him seem more appealing, etc. So what Reggie's going to do with Parker Pine's help? is that he's going to invite a lady friend down for the weekend, one who he doesn't have to fear, who, like, he doesn't have to do anything to impress because she will be in Parker Pine's employee. We've met her before, but this is uh, Madeline DeSara, vamp extraordinaire. I'm not bad. I'm just drawn that way. So they go down there, per Parker Pine's advice, when we, the reader, show up, um, we meet Iris, and, you know, Iris is... Very pretty. I mean, she's in her mid-30s, but she apparently looks way younger than that. Although there's sort of an aside that it's 
through makeup. Well, if she's in her mid thirties, she's a hag, obviously, in Christie's world. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> she's with her friend Mrs. Massington and she basically says, Well, you know, she doesn't really begrudge Reggie the invitation because she's told him what's happened. So yeah, if he wants to invite somebody down, okay. She understands. She also thinks, like, well, you can't be that serious about her because clearly also Madeline de Serra's out of Reggie's league. Yeah, I mean, Madeline, of course, is gorgeous, and she proceeds to flaunt her beautiful dark looks and to talk a considerable length about how Reggie has spent the day teaching her to golf. And aren't ball sports the most important <laughs> thing on earth? Wink, wink. Why have a ballroom with no balls? How she loves nothing more than a man who's so good at business and balls and how hard it must be to be one of those terrible people who likes arts and culture, highbrow snobs with long hair, who don't adore putt-putt. <laughs> she just goes on and on about Reggie and what a keeper he is and how wonderful it is to just bask in his presence and she trots along after him and um it's gross it's gross and iris and mrs massington are like what <laughs> they're, like, they're like is she talking about the same person is she actually trying to seduce reggie like how could she possibly be that into him because he's a boring idiot <laughs> right they're like well she clearly is after something i mean neither of them are stupid right miss massington is like she's trying to marry him <laughs> and iris is a little bit like why and this continues on this continues on for a number of pages and reggie's super awkward and he doesn't he doesn't want to be involved he doesn't want to be he just keeps wanting to retreat to his bedroom because he's not a good actor but then it turns out that his nervousness just makes him seem guilty mm-hmm. so it's actually really helpful he doesn't have to act at all and madeline for example forces reggie to kiss her when she knows that iris is coming around the corner to the rose garden she flatters him at length, and she eventually provokes Iris to invite down Sinclair Jordan. And unfortunately, remember what happens when Sinclair Jordan comes down? Well, lest we forget, Madeline de Sarah, super, super attractive, sexy vamp. You don't know how hard it is being a woman looking the way I do. Sinclair Jordan is very much into Madeline de Sarah. And she is merciless to him. She berates him. She makes fun of his looks and his knock knees. And she continues to throw herself at Reggie. And at this point, as you can imagine, poor Iris is pretty much falling apart since now both men in her life only have eyes for Madeline. And so this continues for, uh, I guess, like a week. She says it's going to take a fortnight, but after a week, she goes back to the offices of Parker Pine to report her success because she has broken Iris down. Mm -hmm. She has emotionally destroyed Iris Wade. It's really quite mean-spirited. Iris just retreats to her bedroom and is essentially non-functioning, and Madeline has two men draped over her in Iris's house. And Iris says, you know, she's sorry to her husband and that she gives up. She gives up. Madeline still, at that point, has advised Reggie to play it cool and go to London instead of saying anything to his wife. And so Parker Pine congratulates her on her success. Until... Until what? And now we're in the world as it actually is because it seems as if this is another successful case in the can, so to speak, uh, for one Mr. Parker Pine. However... 
The office doors of Parker Pine go flying open, and in comes Reggie Wade, proclaiming his undying love for Madeline DeSara. Everything he said about how he would divorce his wife and fall into her arms was no longer acting. It was true because she is God's gift to man. And I believe the turning point for him was when Madeline DeSara forced him to kiss her. He just succumbed to those feminine wiles up close and in his face. I guess his virile manly instincts took over and he was a goner. Mm-hmm. Yep. And I think that the addition of Sinclair Jordan then then they had to fight it out in some like Planet Earth episode. They had to like battle it out like on the savannah for Madeline. Right, he, he was like the alpha he became the alpha dog and just asserted yeah, his dominance. David, David Attenborough is like narrating. Yeah. The incumbent has reestablished his right to mate with the females. And he wastes no time. <laughs> Masculinity in play. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Even more unfortunate, Iris was following Reggie, and she then ends up in the office of Parker Pine, and she's like distraught, and she calls Madeline a homewrecker, which obviously Madeline is. It's all very Jerry Springer. Very Jerry Springer. While Iris is watching, Reggie just has apparently lost his mind. Now what? What's the problem? Now what? Well, the problem is she has a boyfriend. Oh. Like, so? Yeah, you're going to have to. You got a boyfriend? Okay. He can't do what I can do. I mean, like, he can't get down like I can get down. And he's like hysterically begging Madeline to marry him until she freaks out. And tells him to get away from her. And he directly insists, this is not the last you've heard from me. I will be back. I will find you. It's like very stalkery. Iris is still standing there. And she basically says to Madeline, girls like you should be flogged and branded. You ruined my family. You were never a family to begin with. Oh, really? Yeah. Okay. That's why we were happy. That's why we have a son together. That's why he was always coming over to my house. That's a French expression. (laughs) And runs out after her husband, all of which (laughs) super fun. Yes, and our story ends with a final note written by Mr. Parker Pime. I regret to admit it, but it was an error of judgment on my part. And in the file, he writes, failure owing to natural causes. NB... They should have been foreseen. (laughs) And that is the end of the story, my friends. Because I suppose Parker Pine should have realized that not only was Reggie's wife garbage, because he basically just seems to think that she, you know, is going to be swayed by seeing her husband all of a sudden desired by another woman and just discard her new affection for her old one because of that. But um, he forgot to take into account that Reggie is garbage, too. And that he would just transfer his affections to the nearest woman kissing him and that his marriage also meant nothing. So nothing matters and it's all terrible. The end. Love is dead. Yeah. The thing that upsets me the most about it is like, yes, you can argue that, well, Iris is having an emotional affair. She obviously is, but she's very upfront about it. And she's very upfront about her reason. 
And that's the thing that is most upsetting about this story is that she doesn't really do anything wrong. Yeah, I mean, having an emotional affair is not great, obviously. Okay, let me rephrase this. Obviously it's not, but if you were upfront and you say, I am very unhappy, you've not paid attention to me, all you do is play golf, and your husband says, okay, I'll fix that, it doesn't do anything, <laughs> there are grounds there. Yeah. And we get the sense in the beginning of the story before Parker Pine corrupts Reggie with this plan, we get the sense that Reggie's coming to him and that if Parker Pine had said something like, I know, why don't you take a course in art history? Art history, yeah. There's the sickly sweet version of this story in which he takes a bunch of courses, tries really hard, and wins his wife over by all of these adorable efforts. But Parker Pine immediately goes in another direction. (laughs) Parker Pine is a monster in the story, but that's also sort of the, I mean, in so many of these stories, which is, I think, why, Catherine, you have such distaste for them. That's kind of the point. And it's, and it's, and it's like Christie's cruel, nasty little joke, these stories, um, these Parker Pine stories. They're actually quite dark in their, in their own small way. They're mean spirited in a certain way about Mm -hmm. humanity, I think. Mm Mm-hmm. I would yeah. go so far as to say, and I do realize that this is because we are just coming off of, and then there were none, but this is the magic of reading these things out of order and thinking way too much about Christie as we do on this podcast. The sort of nastiness of, and then there were none, you, Catherine, kept on calling it a nasty little story, but that's also a great compliment But I meant it to as it. a compliment. No, I know you did, and I know exactly what you mean, and it's true. This idea of these are all just a bunch of nasty people who did horrible things, and there's this core of cynicism and perhaps even nihilism at its center, which Christy has, and she doesn't always exercise that muscle, but she does it so brilliantly. Brilliantly, and, and then there were none, and it's part of what's so powerful about that story. I think you can see her exercising it in a smaller way in many of these Parker Pine stories, especially this one. There's that same utter cynicism about people and who they really are at their core and how worthless a lot of people really are. I think there's a true connection to be drawn between the two. But you know what I would say is that there is a veneer on these, that they're supposed to be light in some way, and that the internal characters, at least who are on Parker Pine, have some sort of moral judgment and et cetera. Whereas, and then there were none. It's just all thrown out. I think it's all thrown out in this one too, though. In this specific story. This specific story is bleak. In its own little slight way, I think it has the same utter bleakness as we get in And Then There Were None with zero murders right. as opposed so to... Some listeners are turn- tuning into this and they're like, oh my God, <laughs> like, what story did you read? <laughs> I know I'm going out on a limb here, but I, I really think there's a connection to be made between the story and, and Then There Were None. Here's what I guess I would say, and this speaks to... I mean, I know it's a running joke at this point that every single time we have to get to a Parker Pine, I'm like, oh. He's a mercenary who has a front as something helpful. And I think that is so sinister. He's preying on human frailty. Absolutely. And the thing is, I'm not entirely sure whether or not Christy thinks that. I certainly think it, but I'm not sure that these stories were written to be published as short stories in a magazine as this absolute cynical predator on human behavior. 
I think she knows. Again, she certainly doesn't do it in every story or novel. And there's a dark humor to it, too, right? It's this very... Oh, the, the final note is yes. funny. It is funny. It's, funny. it's funny in its darkness and in its utter cynicism. And I think every now and then this flashes within her writing. You could argue that we also get it in the original short story upon which Witness for the Prosecution is based. Yeah, it's brutal. There's this sort of pitch black sense that what we thought was someone who had great moral um, standing was the, was the exact opposite. And of course it was. And it has that air of inevitability to it once the, like, the curtain has finally like been lifted and we see what's really there. And I don't know. I think she knows what she's doing. But, you know, there's an interesting thing that we have talked about the male pulp writers, you know, the Raymond Chandlers and Dashiell Hammett, et cetera, mm-hmm. those sort of authors versus the women primarily golden age mystery novelists. And I would actually make the argument that the noir novelists are sentimentalists by a huge degree when compared to especially Christie. Mm-hmm. Christie wrote so much that she had the breath to do a lot of different things. She just wasn't doing all of them at once. So I think people who want to read her a certain way because of her gender or because of the genre in which she chose to write can construct an angle. She's so easy to construct an angle because there are so many different things that she was doing. So you can cherry pick from these short stories and from her novels to make whatever point you want to make. And that's why, you know, part of the purpose of this project that we're doing is to take a truly holistic look, not just in terms of, you know, the content. I mean, we're, we're really trying to cover everything, which is a lot, but to also give it all its due and analyze it for what it is and give her credit for all the different things that she's doing. I mean, these pine stories, some of these pine stories are just striking in their cynicism and their anti-romanticism. And this is the same person who would pair up lovers and have them live ostensibly happily ever after as an afterthought within a puzzle mystery. And I think the answer to that is probably because she didn't really care all that much. And she added those love story side plots because they filled out the pages, but her focus in a lot of those novels was the puzzle. Well, and I mean, there's a, there's a marked romanticism to say Poirot that you get more than you get anywhere else. Absolutely. But is that it's the same exercise that we make when we're doing our stuck in its time deductions for novels where we say you have to give Christie the benefit of the doubt. Whatever is, is coming out of a character's mouth or from a character's point of view, we have to at least assume that she's doing that for the sake of the character and not necessarily just blindly writing down what she thinks or what she feels. And I think the romanticism is totally a part of that. Poirot is a romantic. And we've we've talked a lot about how the romantics do tend to be the male detectives. But good Lord, there's no one less romantic than Miss Marple. Certainly. And no, she's Christie's sure creation too. Right. And I mean, I think that you can make a very interesting point that she drifted more towards Marple the older she got, right? Mm-hmm. It's also interesting that the last short story that we did was The Manhood of Edward Robinson, which is a very early short story, mm-hmm. which is like misogynist in its own way, but it leans toward romanticism and adventure. And I, I mean, I don't think there's any cynicism to that story. Even the ending, uh, we talked about it in the podcast a little bit about how if she were writing that now, maybe it wouldn't have gone in the direction it does. Mm-hmm. But I mean, I would say that you then look at this story, which is a few years later. Yep. And I mean, this story is uh, mean-spirited. 
by the way, the manhood of Edward Robinson was pre-divorce. The story yeah, is post-divorce. And this yep. Mm-hmm. She had been through a lot at this point. Yep. And I think you can tell that. But it's interesting that you bring up the manhood of Edward Robertson because in the passage I was going to read out, I was going to make a comparison to the manhood of Edward Robertson. Oh, um, please do. So here's what Reggie says when he's talking about Sinclair Jordan. He says, in a way, I can understand a clever, beautiful woman getting fed up with an ass like me. Then Christie writes, Mr. Parker Pine groaned. You have been married how long? Nine years? And I suppose you have adopted that attitude from the start. Wrong, my dear sir. Disastrously wrong. Never adopt an apologetic attitude with a woman. She will take you at your own valuation, and you deserve it. And then he goes on to say how he should have gloried in his athletic prowess and, quote, spoken of art and music as all that nonsense my wife likes and denigrated what she's interested in at the expense right. of what he's interested in. And then he would have had a happy marriage because his wife would have just buckled yeah, she would have been beaten down so much by him. Emotionally abused by him to the point where she would have submitted and said, okay, dear, we'll go out and play golf and I won't go to plays anymore because I know they bore you. And the fact that they bore you means that they must not be any good because you are obviously my lord and master. That's Parker Pine's advice. That is Parker Pine's advice. And it is akin to the advice that Poirot gives at times, which I mentioned on the Edward Robinson episode. You know, Poirot does go on these monologues at times about how all men need to stand up to the women who they're interested in or else those women will never respect them. This, though, is taking that to an extreme well, degree. Ex- except, except for the men who stand up to the women they're involved with and get murdered. This is true. This is true. Well, and I think that in the Edward Robinson episode, I talked about not giving Christy the benefit of the doubt that that was Poirot's point of view and thinking maybe Christy herself actually thought that because Edward Robinson seems to be the romantic take on that notion of gender relations that men just need to stand up. This story really does provide a contrast in which I can feel Christy pushing against that. And I don't feel like she is adopting Pine's attitude necessarily. I feel like she's making fun of it and she's commenting on it in this cynical way. And perhaps it is because of, you know, she was in a different place in her life at that point. We'll never know, but it's just interesting having read these two not very far apart. We've seen other versions of this, right? Where somebody takes dance lessons. What's the, it's, it's a Parker Pine. Um, the case of the, is it discontented wife? I was going to bring that up too. It's the case of the middle-aged wife, but it might as well be called the case of the discontented wife. That is the counterpoint to the story because it's the exact same setup, just flipped for gender. Right. And it actually ends up kind of touching in a way. I mean, like a little bit pathetic. You could argue that the exact same thing happens in that story, which is instead of Madeline de Sarah inserting herself into this marriage, we have Claude Luttrell, right. the male counterpart to Madeline de Sarah. Hey, you mind if I make myself comfortable? My shirt is sticking. Please, please do. Be comfortable. That's my motto, where I come from. It's mine, too. It's hard to stay looking fresh in hot weather where I haven't washed or even powdered. Here you are. He inserts himself into the marriage and he makes the husband jealous so that now the husband is back. He's into his wife again. But the wife does, in a real sort of a way, fall for Claude Luttrell. It's just that he is able to extricate himself from the affair by saying that he's going to better himself and she is made happy with having the memory 
of the affair. And you could say that that is the difference Christy is drawing here between men and women. Men and women. The man has to possess the object of his affection. A memory is not enough as it is for the woman. And it's ugly. The distinction she's drawing here makes women look a whole heck of a lot better than men. That's for sure. Right. Because, you know, even Madeline de Serra, Madeline de Serra is doing a job. It's been made clear up front. It's been made clear repeatedly to Reggie. That's one of the things that Madeline de Serra says to Parker Pine at the end is I couldn't even get him to do what we needed him to do. If you knew the difficulty I had making him kiss me. But then that is the moment and it's the physicality, right? That is the moment in which it all changed because then he lost his mind for her. And also the other thing is they did not have to double down and do it to Sinclair Jordan too. They ruined it in two different uh, ways for mm-hmm. poor Iris. I mean, guess says something bad about Sinclair Jordan too, but like it says right. something bad about every man in this story. It seems like Iris needs to make better choices in, in terms of her relationships overall, but yeah. Well, that or you put Madeline to Sarah in any position and there's nobody who's going to hold up to her. Right. But it's interesting that the distinction to draw between this and the case of the middle-aged wife is not that the wife in middle-aged wife withstood Claude Luttrell's advances. She didn't. She fell for him. She 100% fell for him and they had a real affair, but it's that he was able to leave and she was happy with the memory and having the memory to draw on and return to her husband. And that is not possible when you're flipping the genders. That's the point Christie seems to be making here. Right. So in this story, Reggie intends to want to go back to his wife, except then he doesn't. And in the case of the middle-aged wife, She does want to go back to her husband in the end. And she does. Yeah, and she does. When he says that final line, what is it again? Circumstances. They should have been foreseen? Yeah, so they should have been foreseen, the natural causes. Well, the natural cause that should have been foreseen is that men are weak. Right. That's what she's saying here. She's basically pulling an I hate men. Abide them even now and then. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, again, interesting that this is post-divorce. She was in 1932 already remarried. So she certainly... Play has got to play. (laughs) (laughs) Some men are weak, but it it certainly doesn't seem like some men here. It seems like all men. Parker Pine is so flip about it. Oh, he's so flip. He doesn't care. He doesn't care that he's destroyed three people's lives. For the sake of 200 guineas, which I suppose he never got, by the way, because he didn't succeed. No, it's paid up front. Oh, it is paid up front. Oh, that's even, oh, that's so, that's so devious. Paid up front. Um, Well, no, it's four people if you count Madeline DeSera, who's now going to be stalked by this person. True. True. keep referring to Reggie as garbage, but there's textual support for that because Parker Pine refers to Reggie as, quote, merely a waste product, unquote. (laughs) And he characterizes him that way because, again, Reggie has debased himself with his absolute fidelity. He says, nobody wants you. What use has a woman for something that no one wants? None whatever. He's just so cruel to him. And then he ruins his life. 
ruins all their lives. And then ruins it's just like a, it's just a write-off. Like, oh, I guess that was a mistake. Whoopsies. <laughs> oh, well, that's 200 guineas for me, minus a few expenses. 200 guineas for me to go on my next Nile vacation. The paying in advance, too, is so nefarious because it sort of indicates that he's almost misleading Reggie because he knew that there was a strong chance that it might not work out, which is why he had to be paid in advance. This is the same guy who has set up fake kidnapping and murder plots. So, (laughs) I mean, I don't know how many qualms Parker Pine has. That is the case of the discontented husband. And the discontented Catherine. And the discontented Catherine. And even the discontented Kemper. I think it's going to be a little while before we return to Parker Pine. We shall return. We have many more Parker Pines to cover. Next week, we will be covering our final short story within the Partners in Crime collection. No! I know, I know. We are revisiting Tommy and Tuppence Beresford, and the story we're going to be reading is The Ambassador's Boots. There is one final story after that, which ends the thriller story that's being told in pieces throughout the mystery puzzles that are collected within the Partners in Crime collection. So we will also cover that, just so you know how Tommy and Tuppence end up at the end of that collection, but we're not going to devote a separate episode to that chapter. And I have said this before, but I just want to reiterate that we should all value this last Partners in Crime story because the next time we meet Tommy and Tuppence, they're not going to be young bright things anymore. Well, they're not. So, The Ambassador's Boots next week. And then, just as a general heads up, our next novel a few weeks from now will be Sad Cypress, a Hercule Poirot novel. We have a couple of Poirots ahead, I believe three in a row. So we have a mini glut. Of Poros. As I think all of our listeners know, I'm always happy to be in the warm, well, not warm. Warm would be the wrong word. <laughs> I'm happy to be in the um, mustachioed environs of. The hirsute. <laughs> <laughs> right. The hirsute environs of Hercule Poirot. Of Monsieur Poirot, yes. <laughs> Agreed. We've only had a break of two novels from 30s Poirot, but I'm ready. I'm ready to return. Yeah, me too. So we've got that to look forward to, and we would love to hear from you as always. Feel free to email us at allaboutthedame at gmail.com or find us on Twitter at allaboutthedame. You can find Catherine at Robcat. You can visit our Facebook page, All About Agatha. You can find us on Instagram at All About Agatha. And we would really appreciate it if you rated and reviewed us wherever you are listening to this podcast. It helps others find the podcast. It generally helps us out. And And we will see you next time. Bye. Bye.